What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply people of the internet we are debating how bad is economic equality and we are starting right now with dr ben burgess and sphincter of doom let me give it to you guys for your introductions dr burgess let's you go first sure uh so i am an adjunct philosophy professor at morehouse college and a columnist for jacobin and uh guess publisher would be mad if I didn't plug this. So it just came out a week ago, uh, Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong and why he still matters, uh, which uh, hmm. I should say, by the way, anybody who goes to the event in Dallas next weekend and wants a signed copy, I will definitely bring a few with me. And Sphincter of Doom. Hi, I'm Sphincter of Doom. I don't have my own channel yet. Uh I'm a chemical engineer. Uh, I minored in philosophy, but uh, I do not teach it, no. <laughs> and it's not much else to say about me. All right, thank you so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let me just uh, get my notes back up on the screen, if I may. All right, so tonight we have Dr. Ben Burgess going first to lead things off with his opening statement of uh, 12 minutes each. Then we have a 55-minute opening discussion and then 30 minutes of Q&A. I uh, want to let everybody know that if this is your first time at, at Modern Day Debate, that we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we want you to feel welcome no matter what walk of life you're from. If you have any questions or comments for tonight's debaters, please fire them into the old live chat and be sure to tag me at Modern Day Debates. Super chats go to the top of the lists. And we ask that you please keep that your uh, conversation civil, both in the chat and with your comments. Um, attack the argument and not the person insults will not be read and that goes for the general discourse in the live chat as well our invaluable moderators are working tirelessly to elevate the conversation so please show them the respect that they deserve and each other as well the debaters as well uh please respect uh, each other and not hurl personal attacks and insults our guests are linked in the description below so if you like what you're hearing on youtube or the podcast please click their links and check them out and uh, hit the like, share, and subscribe button so you can keep this channel growing and growing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard or not, but there's a debate conference coming up in a couple weeks, uh, the 15th and the 16th. 
And then tomorrow night we have another debate. Evolution is going to be debated with Dr. Cy Gart and Jen from Church of Entropy. And with that, we're going to go ahead and kick it to the opening statements. Dr. Ben Burgess, you have the floor. All right. Thanks, Kaz. And thank you, Josh. Uh, other than this one time, I'm not going to say Sphincter of Doom. So thank you, Josh, uh, <laughs> for uh, still wanting to do this, even with all the trouble we had scheduling it and all of my nitpickiness about how to frame the issue in the title. Uh, when we were exchanging suggestions about what to call it, one of the ideas floated around was economic inequality on trial. In that analogy, I guess I've been a prosecutor, but of course, it would have been a pretty misleading analogy because even if I can convince everyone watching that economic inequality is very, very bad, there is no judge here to enforce a verdict. We can't debate our way to a more equal society. At a certain point, you have to actually log off and do things like talk to your coworkers about organizing a union. But right now, let's talk about why I think egalitarian values are worth going out there to fight for. I'm certainly not going to argue that we should empower some dystopian bureaucracy to ration everything out to make sure everyone has an exactly equal share of every resource. When I say that economic inequality is indeed very bad, I don't mean that anytime anyone has a little bit more than anyone else, that's necessarily unjust. What I do mean is the kind of raging inequality that's normal in contemporary capital society. The average CEO in a large firm earns hundreds of times what the average fully employed worker makes. And a lot of people are doing much worse than that average full-time employee who has a pension and benefits because they're either underemployed or they're overemployed, stringing together gig economy jobs without benefits or any sense of security for the future. And yeah, I find that kind of inequality grotesque. To illustrate why it's grotesque, I could start talking by talking about sweatshops in Haiti that are subsidiaries of crazy wealthy American corporations or even staying within the borders of the United States. I could talk about the gap in life expectancy between the richest and poorest zip codes. But instead of any of that, I'd actually prefer, I, I think it might be more instructive even to focus on a mundane everyday example of what significant economic inequality looks like, the kind of example that feels so normal to people who spent their entire lives living in a grotesquely unequal society, that uh, oftentimes, uh, if you're at the bottom end of this, it doesn't even occur to you to think of it as an injustice. It just seems like, yeah, that's how life is. So here's the example. A trust fund kid might be able to spend a gap year in India finding himself between high school and college. Meanwhile, his parents pay their cleaning lady, let's say, you know, they, they don't just pay her enough for rent and groceries. You know, she has some spending money, but certainly not enough for her to fly off to any of the places that she might like to visit. Her lack of funds stop her from boarding a plane to any of those places in exactly the same way that she'd be stopped if the TSA put her on a no-fly list. In both scenarios, if she tries to board the plane anyway, men with guns will use force to stop her. And that last point is worth circling and underlining. Some people will say, no, we shouldn't be trying to create a more equal society. We shouldn't be thinking about moving from capitalism to some form of democratic socialism because equality can only be purchased at the cost of freedom. They say capitalism is a system of uncoerced free exchanges, whereas if we try to make society more socialistic by doing things like, for example, nationalizing big corporations, that's coercion. But this is just a rhetorical sleight of hand. Any distribution of scarce resources is ultimately enforced by coercion. 
Uh, that's what's threatened by a no trespassing sign, every bit as much as it's threatened by a bill from the IRS. In fact, in practice, ignoring the first is a hell of a lot more likely to actually lead to a confrontation with armed agents of the state than ignoring the second. So the issue and dispute in arguments about capitalism and socialism and equality and inequality is not coercion, yes or no. It's which distribution of scarce resources should be coercively enforced. And you shouldn't trust anyone who doesn't make that distinction. Now, I've been speaking at a very general intuitive level, but to make this a little more precise, I think there are at least four kinds of objectionable economic inequality. One, I object to any level of inequality that makes us less free. If you have so much less uh, than others that you're completely dependent on the goodwill of people with more to meet your needs, those people with more have a lot of power to make you do what they want. That kind of soft coercion isn't as bad as slavery or forced labor, but it's still pretty bad. And there, if there's a good way to restructure economic institutions so no one is put in that situation by their lack of material resources, we should do that. By the way, that point about how capitalism doesn't have to be as bad as even more coercive systems like feudalism or ancient slave systems that existed in the past in order to be bad is the same reason I'm annoyed when people like Steven Pinker make a big deal of pointing out how much better poor people in 2022 have it than their ancestors who lived under previous forms of social organization. Uh, my beef isn't that it's false. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's it's true. Even, you know, we don't have to go back to distant ancestors. Uh, you know, but my objection is that true or false, it's 100% irrelevant. The same way that racial discrimination in housing or employment was surely less than one-tenth of one percent as bad as the Middle Passage, but it was still a serious injustice that needed to be redressed. All right, that's one. Two, I object to inequality in power. The same way it was unjust when women couldn't vote, and the reason it was unjust is there was no good reason why women should have less power over the direction of society than men, that exact same objection applies to any kind of economic inequality severe enough to result in an inequality of political influence in the state. And the point about equality of power applies just as much to what goes on within a workplace. In fact, grotesque levels of inequality in distribution of resources are not totally, but to a great extent, downstream from inequality of power within firms. In a worker co-op where everyone gets to vote on wage scales, you won't necessarily get a completely equal distribution. You might convince your fellow workers that you need to get paid a little more to give you a reason to take on positions with more responsibility and stress, or conversely, for doing particularly dirty and unpleasant jobs. But good luck trying to convince them that you have to get hundreds of times more than they get. Three, even in a society that wasn't divided into workers and capitalists, uh, if it worked out that economic inequality got so severe that people at the bottom end had just a dramatically worse quality of life because of that. You know, miserable, stressed out about money all the time, can't spend time with their loved ones, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And making the distribution of material resources more equal would correct that situation. Then at least all else being equal, I think a principle of communal caring gives us a reason to do that the same way you might spend some of your individual resources on helping a family member who is in trouble. And no, I don't think it's realistic or even necessarily desirable for everyone to care exactly as much about random strangers as they care about their own families. But there is a hell of a gap separating caring about someone quite that much 
from being so callous towards them that you let them sink to the point where they have to start a GoFundMe to pay for their medical bills. Four, I believe in equality of opportunity. That means that if there's a reasonable way to avoid this, no one should have less access to the resources they need to live a better version of their life because of factors outside of their control. This is the exact reason why we think it's outrageous, for example, if members of racial minority groups have a smaller share of society's resources just because of the color of their skin. Lack of access to resources because of factors outside of your control. Now, a lot of defenders of the capitalist status quo would say, oh, you, we agree with you about that one. We also believe in equality of opportunity. But the fact is they really don't, or at least they don't believe in any particularly deep version of it. Because if, for example, some people can inherit fortunes from their parents uh, and all they have to do is not fritter it away and other people have to work two jobs and drive an Uber at night to make ends meet, that's a clear-cut case of some people having less access to scarce resources than others do because of factors outside of their control. Now, you will notice that I've used a few phrases like all else being equal or if there's a good way to do this. And the reason I've used those phrases is because I'm speaking at the level of values, but I do recognize that politics is complicated and uh, sometimes important values have to be balanced against other values that are also important. And this is the last point I want to get into before I throw it to Josh. If you can convince me that we have to allow large-scale inequality because the only alternative is economic collapse and everyone being way worse off than even the worst off people are now, so that you know someone in the society we live in right now, for example, who's working two jobs and you know what I just said, driving Uber at night to pay for rent and groceries, but still manages to make enough to pay for food for themselves and litter and cat food for their cats, uh, would, we're saying in this hypothetical, that if things were made more equal, there'd be so little to go around that they'd have to resort to eating those cats so they didn't starve to death. If you can convince me of that, that those were the options, then sure, I would reluctantly allow large-scale inequality as a necessary evil. I'd still think it was evil, but I might be convinced that it was a necessary evil. But I'll end by just saying that if anyone seriously wants to make the case that there's no way to make our society at the very least dramatically more equal than it is right now without making the worse off people worse off than they are already, well, as the subject of that book I mentioned earlier might put it, all your work is still ahead of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Burgess, for that great opening discussion. And now we're going to go ahead and kick it over to Josh, also known as the sphincter of doom. Ooh. So I want to I want to thank uh, you guys for having me. Uh, admittedly, my opening is a bit short. I, I much wanted to save time and just get into the meat of our arguments. So it's not going to address. I didn't anticipate everything you were going to say, but I'll just I'll just get into it. And uh, where to go? Uh, a lot of hay has been made about economic inequality and its moral and economic implications, con e implications in concluding that it is harmful or immoral. But I would submit much of this is more haywire thinking. There are critical oversights in the evaluations to wit, special pleading, or circular reasoning. These arguments generally fall into one of two categories, picking only time periods or countries where a trend of inequality being bad is synthesized, or using metrics that are unfalsifiable. 
A good first example is Piketty Say's book, one which helped galvanize a very discussion on inequality, but his findings look only at specific non-continuous years in the 20th century, and he doesn't even account for the depreciation of capital assets over time. When one does so, one shouldn't be surprised when capital values outpace uh, and accumulate faster than others. Another example is a famous TED Talk regarding the spirit level, a book by British policy advocate Richard G. Wilkinson, wherein his choice of which countries to trend to demonstrate more equal societies are better off, uh, various metrics like crime rates, happiness, uh, social mobility, uh, these, uh, but he chooses different countries for those trends from metric to metric. And the most glaring omission of which is Singapore, which has more inequality than the US, but it's absent in every single one of his trends with the exception of the one that fits his metric, which happens to be in the incarceration rate. We can then look at social mobility arguments like those found in Robert Reich's Inequality for All. Here, the argument is that inequality creates less economic mobility, but the measurement of economic mobility here is relative mobility from income one income quantile to another, not absolute earning power. When inequality is higher, the relative quantiles will be further apart. So even an absolute increase in earning power equal to or even sometimes greater than a similar one in a country that has less inequality will appear to be less impactful when in reality that person is equally or even better off. Uh, similarly, economists like Richard Wolff will point to the relative real gains in income by income quantile over time, pointing to the much higher gains for the rich and lower or even negative gains for the lowest quantiles. What this argument fails to account for is the distinction between statistical categories and flesh and blood people. Who actually occupies the 1% or any quantile varies over time. And indeed, there's a lot more flux into and out of the highest and the lowest income quantiles annually. Uh, it's, it actually turns out that about one in nine Americans will find themselves in the one percent at least once, at least one at one point in their lifetime. And of those in the one percent that persist to stay in the one percent for ten years or more, that only comprises about one, ten to eleven percent of the one percent. All these arguments overlook a critical question that to be asked regarding inequality. How are real people affected? What is their absolute earning power? We don't buy things by our portion of GDP or our portion of the total AGI. We buy it in whatever the legal tender is. How, so how much do people have and how far it goes is the real question. If the amount they have is too low, that's an issue, and it's an issue of absolute poverty, but not relative poverty. And absolute poverty occurs independently of relative poverty. Singapore has one of the highest levels of income inequality in the world. It's even higher than the U.S. Yet there is little absolute poverty, all with lower taxes and a less extensive welfare system. Alternatively, Afghanistan has one of the lowest income inequalities in the world, but they're all just more equally poor in absolute terms. Obviously, there's a lot of other factors than inequality itself, but I use these that analogy to illustrate that inequality isn't as good of an indication as one might initially think. Another critical oversight uh, in the argument that excessive inequality, a commonly unqualified term, what level of inequality is unacceptable, is necessarily bad is overlooking the manner in which the inequality arises, whether it's by political favors and corruption or by market mechanisms and voluntary exchange. Given Singapore, again, <laughs> has more inequality than the US, but few or, or if any of the problems commonly claim to be caused by excessive inequality, despite having more than the US, this raises serious doubts about either what is causing these problems or the impact of inequality itself.
It may be that the inequality is at best a symptom of an underlying problem, but not the problem itself, uh, itself necessarily. The IZA, a German labor, uh, a German labor-friendly think tank, sought out to see if that may indeed be the case, and they did a statistical analysis of um, OECD countries, and they found that when inequality arises through political favors, it does, it absolutely can be a problem for economies. It's, it's uh, overall negative growth for, for economies. But if it occurs absent of these or with very small amounts of political favors, it actually is good for the economy, um, at least to the extent that the inequality exists currently. Of course, the, if these findings hold true, that means two things. First, even where inequality is due to political favoritism, the solution isn't redistribution. And I know that uh, Dr. Burgess was not necessarily suggesting a redistribution, but um, but the solution is to root out the political favoritism. Um, and secondly, where inequality does arise through markets, that is good for the economy and people overall. And when it comes down, when it boils down to it, without inequality, we wouldn't have an economy. And 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 uh, that was it. Uh, I, I did wrote. I, I took notes during uh, your uh, opening, Burgess, uh, Dr. Burgess. I'd like, and I, I figured those would that'd be a good start starting point to discuss. Sure. So, uh, um, I did have one clarifying question. Your number three, I, I I wrote down. I was writing down all four. Could you clarify what you meant on number three? Because I wasn't sure what what the actual inequality to which you objected sure so uh so number three was just any level of inequality that resulted uh in people having much worse lives than they uh, that they would given the same resources being distributed uh, more equally okay um so i'm just gonna go down the list if that's okay and, and feel free to take Sure. Yeah. There's, there's, are, we, I mean, are we ready to go in an open discussion now? Or are we still in the uh, opening? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm I'm done with my opening. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I guess we're in okay. open discussion. All right. Yeah. Go ahead and stop the timer then, and uh, start the 55 minute timer. Let's, yeah. let's go ahead and kick it off, gentlemen. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, no, there's definitely stuff I wanted to ask about from yours too. But sorry, you, you want to go through this one at a time. Let's do that. All right. Well. So the, the first thing is the, the CEO pay one. Um, this, I think, is another instance of kind of math without uh, proper context. Yes, like, for example, you'll look at the example I like to bring up is like McDonald's CEO made $20 million last year. And that sounds mm -hmm. like a lot more than any McDonald's worker. But if you yeah, actually took that in. I don't think it just sounds like it. I think it is it. Right. I, uh, but if you take that entire 20 million and divide it among the, I think it's 1.6 million McDonald's employees, it would amount to 25, like, uh, I think it was half a cent an hour more. So while it's a big number, but it's not as if his pay, even if it was reduced to zero and distributed among all the workers, mm -hmm. their pay isn't going to be all that much different. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that there are a, a couple things going on here. Uh, and, and I think part of it depends, of course, you know, the revenue from McDonald's that doesn't go into new investment and, uh, and that doesn't go into worker pay is certainly not confined to the pay of the CEO. Uh, but, uh, you know, which is, which is relevant if, if we're thinking about the diversion of McDonald's that was organized by, as a co-op or something. But also remember, like, so the point about CEO pay is a point about the extent of disparity. But then the next question is, if that's bad. Right, which I think it is. Why is it bad? 
And so the, the first one that I mentioned uh, is that that level of disparity, you know, leads to uh, large scale inequalities in power. If, uh, if you are the CEO of McDonald's uh, and, you know, you, uh, you call your congressman, uh, you know, you will, you will most definitely, if not in the moment, you know, that day, get to have a conversation with the congressman himself. Whereas if you're one of those workers, uh, you know, you're, you know, I mean, you'll be lucky to have an extended conversation with an intern or, you know, uh, maybe, maybe somebody from, uh, from a temp agency. So that kind of significant, you know, the fact seems to be, and maybe you dispute this, right? But, uh, but the first part of the first point was that, you know, was that large scale, you know, inequality, economic inequalities tend to result in large scale inequalities in political influence. I'm not, well, I'm not necessarily convinced that's the case either, because if you look at pre-tax inequality in a lot of developed countries, some of them are at similar levels than the U.S., mm -hmm. pre-tax inequality. I mean, if you look at, like, say, Finland, for example, they don't have this, uh, they, much like the U.S., they lack restrictions on total campaign spending or contributions, mm -hmm. and yet they don't really see the same levels of corruption that we have in the U.S. And yeah, I think a much, but I think, I think, um, Sorry, I think a better explanation for a lot of the lower levels of corruption we have and we see in Europe and Canada is that you, you know, corruption is a symptom, and so what you like money in politics, I think, is the is the symptom, not the problem, and because there's so much power to be captured and it's in a, and it's so concentrated, and but in Europe you have far more legislators per capita and you have far more uh, local and regional, provincial, state uh, legislation. So the power is diffused more. So securing the loyalty of any particular legislator doesn't go as far, especially with a parliamentary system that has more turnover. I think that is a better explanation for why they have less corruption. And I'm all for going more towards that, especially with like mixed member representation and all that. And that's, that's a s separate question to economic inequality. Maybe, well, maybe it's not, but yeah, as for so, as for the fact, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've got all no, these it's okay. thoughts. It's okay. It's, it's 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 okay. I just thought you were done, but go keep going. As for the CEO pay, yes, the CEO pay has more money by himself, but collectively, McDonald's workers, their total pay exceeds that of the CEO by a good deal. Uh, CEO sure. pay. So I mean, if if those workers were to organize and even just contribute a little bit of money each, if each one of them contributed. $15, that's more than the entire pay of the CEO that they could give towards a particular um, pack if they wanted to. Okay, but, okay so, so that might be a good place to, to, to pause because sure, I think you, you said a few different things uh, there. Uh, so I, I think that I wouldn't want to equate the issues of... Um, man, I'm getting a little bit of an echo. Can you hear that? Okay. Um, so I wouldn't want to equate the issues of, uh, you know, unequal political influence with the issue of uh, corruption. It's certainly true that one way that, uh, that people, you know, that people with vastly more concentrated wealth could have more influence uh, than people with vastly less is like, you know, handing out bribe money. Uh, that's what, that's one channel uh, between, um, you know, between uh, concentrated economic power and concentrated political power. Uh, and it's one that Americans tend to focus on a lot and, and kind of have a charmingly naive belief that uh, that we can campaign finance or reform our way out of it. But I actually don't think it's the most important, uh, you know, mm. channel. 
Uh, I think that uh, because, you know, there are plenty of places that have far stricter campaign finance laws than the United States, uh, where it's still the case that, uh, that you know, the, that the owners of capital have vastly more, uh, you know, political, uh, you know, political influence, you know, than, than any, any particular uh, individual working class uh, person. In fact, I think every country in the world uh, sat satisfies that description. So just as just as one quick example, uh, you know, another channel between concentrated economic power and concentrated political power that has absolutely nothing to do with bribery or corruption or campaign finance is, uh, you know, the business veto that, you know, that if you if you do things that uh, if you do things that displease, uh, you know, the uh, the owners of uh, of businesses, at least large businesses, uh, you know, they, they can always, you know, they can always take their business elsewhere. Uh, and this is and that, you know, and that risk of capital flight is something that effectively disciplines the uh, egalitarian ambitions of governments all around uh, all around the world, you know, and, and, is, and is in fact, I think, actually a much more effective means of discipline. I think I would also point to ownership of media and uh, and the way that that's uh, that that's linked to uh, to political influence, even on voters in that case, uh, you know, by uh, by not very many corporations. Uh, but the last thing I, I did just want to say was on the point, you know, the McDonald's example, just just, you know, sticking with that for a second. Sure. Uh, if if every single if every single McDonald's employee, uh, you know, got together and, and made a coordinated effort to exert, you know, exert political influence, uh, you know, then, um, you know, then they could, you know, I mean, they wouldn't have exactly the uh, the same abilities, you know, because because they, they don't have the power uh, to uh you know they don't have the power to to, to influence company decision making in ways that uh, you know in ways that the uh, that uh, politicians would uh, would worry about. They might uh, uh, you know, but they, you know, but they can go on strike. You know, they have various ways of exerting political influence. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, the point is that it's much, much, much easier for people with concentrated economic power to exert, you know, concentrated, you know, political influence that, you know, you don't have the same kinds of collective action problems with making that happen that you do with a variety of ordinary people. Because, yeah, I think it's always true in any kind of hierarchical system that, sure, if, if all of the people at the bottom, you know, uh, resisted that system or made an effort to reform it, you know, then, uh, you know, even slavery wouldn't work, you know, with, with all slaves, you know, resisted at the same time. But I wouldn't conclude too much from that. Okay, it's a. It seems like we more kind of disagree on which is more impactful. I, I personally think that the the concentrated government power is if addressing that would, in effect, address the uh, how people wield their wealth, as it were. Um, but so 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 actually, maybe maybe I can clarify that because I hear people okay. say this this a lot, and I'm not, or at least I hear people say a version of that, and I'm not certain if what okay. you mean is the same. All as right. What, as, as what's often meant by that. So, uh, so uh, a version that I'll often hear, you know, from like libertarians is, oh, basically, if, you know, if we had a less, you know, like a, a state that, you know, that, that played less of a role in the economy than, you know, than the, uh, you know, the prize, uh, you know, wouldn't be, uh, you know, wouldn't be worth as much. Uh, but I think you're saying something slightly different because of the things that you said about parliamentary systems and all of that. Well, it's a little bit of both. So it's so the, your uh, part of it is yes, the prize. It, there's there's less to gain if you capture that power, but at the same time, 
it's less likely to be captured because, or it's even it's even harder to stay captured because there are more actors at play that can either be influenced by other groups or go their own way. Uh, it's kind of like a, like think of it like the the a cartel. The more members of a cartel, it's harder to really keep everyone on this like to behave as it were. Mm. But even when, it, but also when it does get captured, because there's less power to be wielded in that way, less damage mm. is done. So it's kind of a it's it's both of them, and you can like so regulatory capture is it the more the more power there is the more like the more bigger incentive it is to capture it the more concentrated it is the easier it is to capture, and depending on what you want you either want to reduce the power or diffuse it and those aren't mutually exclusive. Sure, but, you could do both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, I got you. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess I'm you know I'm not sure about the the second claim, uh, the diffusing claim, because it seems to me that at least in the American context, our, our federalism, you know, the way that the way that so many powers are devolved to uh, to states, uh, and uh, and the relative lack of centralization, you know, compared uh, to uh, to at least some uh, European countries in many ways, actually uh, actually makes it easier uh, for uh, for corporations uh, to uh, to to get what they want, right? I mean, if if uh, uh, if Amazon uh, is is sort of dangling out the prospect of opening their headquarters in one of five places, uh, or you know whatever you know the uh, say, you know a car company, you know once you know is off is offering to uh, to open up a factory, then you know you'll get state governments you know tripping over each other competing uh, to uh, to give them uh, to give them the best uh, the best deal and the most tax breaks and to roll out the red carpet. I mean, we've we've seen some dramatic examples of that lately. Whereas uh, a more centralized government, you know, does have more bargaining power there. Uh, and and I I also think historically, um, just at least again at least in the American context, if you look at the history of things like right to work laws, uh, it's it seems it seems to be easier. Uh, for you know, employers, you know, associations and chambers of commerce that lo- lobby for such things to get them done on a state level at a national level. So I'm just not sure that that's actually empirically true. That the diffusing, uh, you know, the diffusing uh, makes it harder for uh, you know people at the top of an unequal economic setup to exert political influence. But I've I've always been really confused about the first claim, which is the one I'm more familiar with, you know, because it's a sort of very common, you know, libertarian kind of claim. Not that you're necessarily that, and uh, and it always seems like, yeah, okay, uh, if you know, if you somehow had a combination of extreme economic inequality, really concentrated economic power, but uh, the state wasn't doing any favors for the people at the at the top, it was. It was acted the way that it's supposed to, and in, in, in the sort of minimalistic libertarian conception of what a state should would do, uh, then then sure uh, there there would be you know there would be no favors being given, but it it just it seems like the claim uh, that somebody like me would make would precisely be that uh, that if that if you have concentrated economic power, the holders of that will inevitably. You know, get the state uh, to 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 do them favors. You know that maybe that can be counteracted with things like the extremely stronger unions you have in places like Finland. But all else being equal, you know that's just going to happen. That you know, saying, you know, the idea that you could have capitalism that wasn't crony capitalism. You know that uh, that you know that you'd that you'd have this much economic inequality going on, but it just wouldn't translate into 
uh, into the, the state intervening in the economy on, on behalf of the people with lots of it has always been very confusing to me. I don't know what the mechanism is by which that would happen. Well, I think it's important to remember that absent political favoritism, what your economic power is based on how well you provide products that people demand. I mean, if you're not doing that, or you're grifting people or whatnot, that power is going to wane very quickly. Uh, um, that, that's why. Sure, sure. I, I mean, although, although I and also, out... I mean, also in the absence of the state doing favors, it'd probably be easier for unions to form as well, and not just big unions, but unions that may compete with another because they may have dis disagreements as to how they feel their workers should be represented. Like maybe you'll have young workers that might want higher wages versus middle-aged worker, like you know, thirties in their thirties, they might want more childcare, for example. Yeah. So, so again, I get that, you know, absent political favors, uh, <coughs> nobody's doing, nobody's doing any political favors, but, but I guess my question is what's the mechanism by which it would ever be the case that you had this much economic inequality without, uh, it translated into, into political favors through, through all oh, those I channels, see. right? Like, 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 in other words, either, you know, presumably it's not that we think that the people who, um, that you know, Amazon and Walmart and McDonald's and et cetera are going to nobly hold back from trying to do that, right? So uh, it, it seems to me that attacking the economic power is the, is the only way of, uh, of reducing the, uh, the, the political, uh, you know, the, the political influence over the long term. Well, I misunderstood your question before. Mm. Uh, so um, the reason why is that it takes resources to secure whether it's lobbying or bribes, whatever, however you want to characterize it, it takes resources to do that. And it takes, and once the politicians are on it, they're going to want a constant stream. And that, so it takes resources to actually get them to be loyal to you. If the amount that you get back from that loyalty is very little, then it's not really worthwhile. Um, either it's little because the state has little power to really intervene, or it's that you can't, because there's so much turnover, you can't get a, a big enough coalition to get the state to do what you want. Yeah. So, so again, I don't know how this reduction in power is, is going to happen uh, without a, uh, uh, you know, reduction in state power is going to happen without that reduction in uh, in economic inequality. I'm, I'm skeptical that you could have a state that was strong enough to enforce property rights, but wasn't strong enough to be used uh, in in cronyistic uh, ways. But 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 I did just want to I, I didn't want it to get lost. You, know, you said something a minute ago about how uh, absent you know political corruption. Uh, the only the only way that uh, that you know that ec economic power only comes from providing goods and services that people want, and you know not you know grifting people. And and I guess the two things I would say about that were one, just as a historical fact, even if we're narrowly focusing on that issue, right, the providing of the goods and services to consumers, um, you know, they actually you know I mean I don't know about you know depends a little bit on what you mean by uh, by grifting, but uh, mm. but you know but. But massive fraud of consumers, uh, the certainly you know wildly unsafe products you know going to consumers, etc., uh, is is something that that happened. Uh, well, it still happens quite a bit, but it happened quite a bit more, you know, before uh, the expansion of the regulatory state in uh, the 1970s, you know, with with a bunch of uh, consumer protection laws. So, would your view be that those those things happening? 
was somehow a result of, of political favors being done, you know, or, pol or political corruption, or is there a way that could happen in the, in the, in the, in the market, just, you know, left to its own devices? Well, it's important to remember that when people uh, refer to free markets, like when they're extolling the virtues of free markets, at least they don't mean like zero rules at all. There's there's rules for uh, defining and defending property. There's rules against uh, aggressive violence, like fraud and assault uh, and theft. And there's also some means of adjudicating disputes disputes in a in a kind of court system. So that I, that the assumption is that that's in place. As for uh, various consumer safety products, a lot of that actually has been corrupted itself. There are many life-saving drugs that are prevented from being allowed in the U.S. because of the FDA. And it's kind of a bootleggers and Baptist situation because the FDA is just super cautious about everything. And also their the enforcement agencies are corrupted because pharmaceutical companies don't want competition. A, 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 an interesting example is the catalytic converter. Uh, when the new um, emission standards came out, uh, Japanese motor companies, they retooled their engines to meet the emission standards, where American uh, companies, they developed the catalytic converter, which artificially increased the cost of the car slightly. The, the American motor companies lobbied to have catalytic converters required thus making the Japanese automaker uh, motor companies, they, their cars had to be more expensive as a result, even though their cars already met the emission standards. So this kind of uh, protection cronyism uh, is increasingly so. Uh, like, for example, there's a regulation, it's like one of the weirdest regulations I saw, uh, where there's a maximum and a minimum for the diameter and thickness of pickle slices. And that's because the companies that make the machines that slice your pickles, they've, they've invested, they want their investment protected. They don't want the competition. It's just kind of silly. Now, that doesn't mean that all consumer protection is like that. But once you put that in place, you create that incentive to capture it and corrupt it in that way. Sure. But, uh, but, but I guess one thing I find a little bit confusing about that answer is that uh, you kind of started out by saying, well, yeah, of course, uh, you know, you have laws against all of these ways that uh, that companies, you know, historically have, and you know, still continue to. I mean, like no law is perfectly enforced, but you know, is uh, but off, but you know, his, but certainly like in the early seventies, at the time that like unsafe at any speed was coming out, and the big, big push for a lot of these consumer regulations was happening, was happening in uh, just rampant ways, right? You know, and so the first thing you said was, well, of course we'd have laws to to stop stuff like that, right? So you're sort of accepting the basic framework that there are. Uh, laws, you know, some sort of consumer protection laws in place. And then you started talking about regulatory capture and, uh, and the process being corrupted to, uh, to prevent competition. And, and so, so, so I guess one thing is how the two halves of that answer, um, you know, fit together, right? I mean, if, if the idea is that there's, that there's like, you know, some consumer protection laws, but like little enough that we're not going to, we're not going to have a regulatory capture problem given concentrated economic power, then <coughs> is, is that little going to be enough to, uh, to, to prevent like, you know, lots of people dying from stuff like, uh, you know, unsafe cars like that data example? Um, well, uh, another thing that's also to consider is that before the APA kind of existed in earnest, you could sue. You had a, you had much you have a lot you had a lot more uh, 
ability to sue companies that you know dumped on your land or dumped near your land and it got into your water system and whatnot. Once the EPA came along, they basically decided what did and didn't count as pollution, and then narrowed what counted as you know standing. Uh, so the issue I think is that we it, it's it, I think it's more of a tort reform issue. I was referring to laws mainly against aggressive violence, and in that case, that kind of would be if it's just dumping on your land. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it's a, so when you have regulators defining what does and doesn't count as harm, people who are harmed may no longer have a reprieve, and people yeah. who have not who, people who have not been harmed can now claim to be harmed, and then. So I get, I'm not sure if that answered your question, though. Uh, no, I don't think it does because okay. the, the question the question was uh, if you you know if you could somehow you know you wave a magic wand and you reduce the, the consumer protection part, right? Which is all we're talking about here right now, because uh, and and that's also something we don't want to get lost. That of course uh, the you know the dangers of you know the problems with uh, with with economic inequality. You know, like I think every single thing I said would be completely consistent with every single company uh, that's that's you know enriching owners or investors, you know, making good products and you know and, and and satisfying consumer needs. I think I think all of my objections to economic inequality are completely consistent with that okay. scenario. But of course, we know in real life that hypothetical is not realized. That uh, that uh, that there there is lots of fraud. That the uh, that of of various shades of subtlety that um, that oftentimes um, you know companies will will put wildly unsafe things on on the product uh, on on the market and you know a la uh, the, uh, the the main character's day job and in, uh, in Fight Club uh, if uh, you know like there's a there's a sort of decision about whether to pull things off the market that's a calculation about how much you think that you know you're going to lose from from being from being sued and so the question was do you think that if we could wave, wave that magic wand and somehow shrink the regulatory apparatus for consumer protection down to some level that you think wouldn't be an attractive reward for regulatory capture if that nub that was left would be enough to stop like lots of people dying because of because of unsafe products for example well if you take that away and you open up the fact that you know companies will still be much more liable because a lot of those regulations in place also limit the liability of those corporations. Then corporations have to do a recalculation, like like you said with uh, the main the narrator in Fight Club. If you make it not worthwhile, bakeries aren't going to just poison. <clears throat> pardon me. Bakeries aren't just going to poison their customers intentionally or even just recklessly, mm. but there is sometimes it's like, well, sometimes a small amount might get in and it's not going to kill you. And, but some of the limits are arbitrary for like, this is just like, for example, when it comes to the nuclear community, like a lot of the, the, the your nuclear exposure limits are orders of magnitude lower than what is unsafe to be exposed to. And, and that's, Part of the league is just that people are kind of irrationally scared of nuclear. Part of it is also mm. lobbying on both the part of environmentalists as well as fossil fuel lobbyists. So again, it, it gets back into the whole bootleggers and Baptists parable where you have multiple parties with different motives that are for this policy and the, the greedy versions of why they're for kind of get a uh, plausible deniability because of the more noble intentions behind it. Yeah, um, so, so, but, so but, but to answer your question, I, I do think 
uh, it would depend on how we would reform, like you know, tort reform. But I, I, I and I, I, I do like this topic, but we probably should move on to another. Yeah, section. yeah, yeah. And so, and, so, and, and I, I, it should be your turn. You probably had a question. Well, the, so, this so, might be so, a good chance. So, so, so can I just really, really quickly say, yeah, Cass, Cass, before? So, first of all, we can separate out the tort reform issue. We could, we, we could, uh, we could have, we could limit caps on how much you know you sue people for while keeping the regulatory state uh, states uh, in place. Uh, but second is, you know, just counting on torts to do the job only works, uh, you know, when you uh, when you have the funds for uh, for a good lawyer, and sometimes you know, good lawyer will take on a case for prestige or whatever, but. Uh, uh, but assuming that that's going to happen enough uh, for the people who most desperately need redress, I think is a pretty heroic assumption. Perhaps, but if you don't have much of a case, then you, uh, you're not being able to. You're, you probably won't get to find a lawyer anyway. So if you can't prove your case, then what? I mean, what, what what's what's the solution to that? That's that's the. But that's, regulation, that's just, re regulation is the solution. I mean, I mean because, uh, because, because, because the whole the whole point of regulation rather than just leaving it all to the tort system, is that we don't have to wait for something to, uh, you know, this, this provably impacted me, and I, I have the time and the resource to investigate it and to get a, uh, get a good lawyer to, uh, to, uh, to, to make my case. Uh, we just have to have, oh, you're recklessly, you know, we're not going to be intentionally poisoning, you know, the, the bakery products, but we recklessly... Uh, you know, let unsafe products, pro products out onto the market that have the danger of killing lots of people. And I think if you lack the resources to do all the things you just said, I think, you know, the regulatory state is as imperfect as it is. See where we started about how I'd, you know, like to change the economic system in general, but as imperfect as it is, I think it's a much better solution than courts. Well, uh, the issue is that regulation doesn't necessarily prevent harm. Like even like this regulation in place is meant to stop this harm. But how do you know how much harm would have actually occurred with the regulation not in place? And not only that, but it functionally turns into... Bad point does for torts. Uh, I'm, well, we'll revisit that. I'll, I'm going to have my second thought, and then we'll revisit that, because I'm, I want to hear that. But um, <clears throat> by saying, hey, you have to prove this is safe, as opposed to having to demonstrate harm... You're, you're functionally putting a regulatory cost on corporations or at least producers that they're guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's entirely appropriate. I don't think that the I don't think that the reasons why we have uh, such a high uh, high burden for uh, for proof in uh, in criminal law uh, apply in this case. I think having to prove that uh, that your that your products are safe, uh, you know, that's I, I don't see that as a deep rights violation in the way that you know putting people in prison or executing them uh you know with with the you know with the burden on them would be a deep rights violation but you but you're still i'm <clears throat> sorry i lost my train of thought okay, okay Cavs, do, do well, I, uh... yeah go ahead sorry while you um think about how you want to respond to that let me just say to the audience one one quick second that uh if you are enjoying what you are seeing and hearing please don't forget to like share subscribe hit that like button, please. If you are enjoying what you're hearing from one of the speakers in particular, you can check out the description box. One of their links will be there. You can go and check out their channel or wherever they are located. You can hear more from them. And um, also, 
if you have any questions for the speakers, if you have any comments for them, please send a super chat. Um, or if you uh, if you don't want to send a super chat, you can ask a question. But super chats do get priority. They will be read first. So please send us a super chat so that we can ask the, the debaters uh, questions. Our uh, live, our Q&A will be starting in about 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to say. So uh, go ahead, gentlemen. Uh, so... I, I got my train back on, on track. So the uh, violation of rights thing, the, yep. the, the issue there is, so I have no problem with companies being prosecuted for fraud, saying this product does this, what it doesn't, including you know the scope of its function that it claims is safe. I'm okay with that because that's functionally fraud. But at the end of the day, we're essentially holding corporations responsible to a degree, at least, where people, if people are abusive or reckless with that product, and it ends up being unsafe, it's it's on the corporation then. So, I mean, th there's a balance there. And that, that's why, I mean, maybe it was an, a stretch to say, like, they're all guilty until proven innocent. It was more to kind of characterize it that way than that. I am reluctant on a lot of strict liability crimes because I think you can you should not punish people when the harm hasn't been occur has occurred. Um, you shouldn't. You certainly shouldn't punish people before potential harm has occurred. I believe you're muted, sir. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, if uh, yeah, so uh, so the idea that you you know uh, punish people you know before before harm is occurred you know seems uh, seems like a very weak reason to me to uh, to oppose uh, stopping people from uh, from doing things that we know. Uh, have an unreasonable potential for harm. Now, if if you if you're much more worried about um, you know companies being unreasonably stopped from uh, from doing things that are uh, that are safe, then uh, then you are about uh, about people you know about actually unsafe products being put out and victimizing people who are often not going to be in any sort of position. Uh, to uh, to to sue, you know, realistically, uh, don't really have the uh, the resources to, you know, even do the initial initial investigation. Then I guess that makes sense. But I mean, my priorities would be um, would be the opposite uh, the opposite on that one. Uh, oh, and, and the thing you said earlier that you wanted to hear uh, was about the the parity argument about regulation and torts, which is that. Um, mm. Uh, and if you want to move on to other stuff, we don't have to do the whole thing on this, but just, just really briefly, because you did ask about it, uh, the, uh, the parody argument was just that, you know, you could equally say, uh, you know, we don't know if we hadn't made it really easy to sue people, right? Uh, mm -hmm. we, we don't know how much, you know, how much harm would have happened that was presented, you know, with, that was, that was prevented by, by making it this easy, because presumably in both cases, okay. you know, a big part of the point of either making it really easy to sue people or imposing regulations, and by the way, I'm for both. But the uh, but uh, but either strategy, the uh, the you know, all a big part of the point is is deterrence. And yeah, that's that that is that is somewhat hard to measure. I'm not convinced that we don't have you know reasons to think that the sort of consumer safety and environmental laws that came in in the 70s uh, have led to, uh, to 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 less harm. I suppose it's possible that there would have been that much less harm anyway, independently of them. Uh, but man, I would sure rather err on the safe side on that. 
I see what you mean, and that's that's a decent parody. I uh, I'm inclined to agree that it really is just it comes down to we don't really know, and uh, we could talk about this more. I think we should move on to another element. And uh, I asked you a question about that, and then we branched off to a whole bunch. I think it's you, you should uh, unless you want we can go down my list, but you you wanted to ask me a couple things. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to uh, to go down uh, the the list. Uh, I guess I guess in a in a bigger you know sort of picture way, right? Like it, it seems like a lot of what your opening statement was about was some combination of how bad the sort of immediate utilitarian effects of uh, of economic inequality are, uh, and then uh, that was that was one big thing that was about. And the and the other was about um, you know degree of of economic mobility, right? So so it's it's not as bad that you know people at the bottom are way worse off as people than people at the top if you could if you could make your way you know from the from the bottom to the top. And I I think that was the defense of of it. And I think those were the two big defenses of inequality that was here and there. Well, so for the second part, it wasn't just. Um, it, had, it was more that your ability to move through the relative income quantiles isn't what mattered. It's what was your absolute buying power? Mm-hmm. Um, like how much do you have and how far it goes? If you have enough to get by or even like have a, and if, even afford a few luxuries, why does it matter at all how much more somebody else has? The, the, how much more they have is going to have little effect on your buying power, uh, for example. And that, well, that, that was, well, that, that I mean, was I mean, the... okay. I mean, it does, right? I mean, like the uh, like like how much more they have does actually in the moment. We can argue about long termism and, and you know whether you know and whether allowing this makes everybody's buying power greater over time, etc. You know that would be kind of the standard argument. But certainly, there's no denying that in the moment, uh, some people having more buying power absolutely uh, does uh, does mean that you have less. I mean, there are finite resources. And this is the uh, this is the system for uh, for allocating that. Uh, and if and if some people you know some people have more than absolutely some people some people have less. And if the question is well if you can get by and have a few luxuries, then what does it matter that you have so much smaller share of the pie that there is of finite resources to go around than someone else does? Uh, and and I think that there are a bunch of reasons. Uh, why uh, why that would matter? I mean, one is brought up by the inequality, uh, equality of opportunity point, which uh, which is uh, is that if if there's no good reason for that, right, then uh, then it does it does seem unjust if some people are arbitrarily being uh, being denied that. So if 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 you have a smaller share just because you chose, you know, not to work very hard, or you you made different choices about you know work you know work life balance. Then, you know, fair enough. I might not quarrel with the justice of that. Uh, but if it's because of factors outside of your control, that is that is presumably something that I think most of us would would recognize as a reason to find unequal distributions unfair. I mean, you've brought up political favoritism and corruption many times, and there are different reasons why you might be uh, opposed to one of those things. But surely uh, one of the reasons is the unfairness of it, right? Why should some people have a leg up over others? Uh, because of political favoritism and corruption, that's surely one of the reasons that we uh, that we object uh, to you know to racial discrimination, for example. That you would you know that you would say, hey, if you know black people you know uh, face certain kinds of discrimination at a given point, you know, well, as long as the average black person has enough to get by and you know and a few luxuries, 
then um, you know, no harm, no foul. You're right. You know, you say no, that's deeply and, and objectionably unfair. Then we can kind of go through all of the other reasons. But I, I would I would say um, you know I would say everything that I listed off in, in the original is a reason why we should still uh, still object to, to that point. I guess the only one that it would be relevant to is the one about um, absolute you know absolute quality of life. But even there, I would really question the idea that economic inequality is uh, is irrelevant uh, to uh, to that. That the uh, that if you you know if you look at all the studies about comparative uh, life expectancy, for example, in uh, wealthier and poorer zip codes, often within the very same city, some you know sometimes very close to each other. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say that uh, that the that the condition of people in the poor zip codes who live like thirty years less on average in some American cities, uh, that that has nothing to do with the condition of people in wealthy zip codes. There's nothing that we could do in terms of redistributed resources that would uh, that would raise that quality of life and raise that life expectancy. But man, that does not seem very plausible. Well, I, I want to touch on equality opportunity because <clears throat> it is my opinion. Equality opportunity is this is this weird um, uh, nebulous term in politics, in my opinion. Uh, and it, my experience, anecdotally, of course, is progressives tend to use it, but then they they would point to disparities in outcome and say that must be due to unequal opportunity. And I'm I'm speaking generally, it doesn't necessarily apply to you. And then conservatives will say I'm for equal opportunity, and they look for equal treatment. And if there's equal treatment, there must be equal opportunity. So it really, I think, seems to be a code word, for lack of a better term, for what their real their real political priorities are. And again, I'm not necessarily projecting either of those onto you. So my question is, when you talk about equal equality of opportunity, what do you mean by it? Yeah, so so I think I gave the definition uh, that that I would use in uh, in the opening, but we could recap it and maybe go into a little bit of some of the differences between different things that people mean by it. Uh, so uh, Gia Cohen is a 20th century socialist analytic philosopher I like a lot, and he makes a distinction between three kinds of equality of opportunity, uh, what he calls uh, bourgeois equality of opportunity, which just means there's no legal impediment to anybody from, from any background rising to, to any given level. Uh, so you don't have, you know, apartheid laws, for example, uh, you know, but it's, it's a sort of purely negative understanding of equality of opportunity. Uh, and then you could have what he calls left liberal equality of opportunity, where you recognize certain kinds of social disadvantages that you need to compensate for them in order to put people on a, uh, on a level playing field. He gives the example of Head Start programs. And then uh, what he calls socialist equality of opportunity, which is, which is what I mentioned at the outset, which is the idea that it is, uh, that it is in principle objectionable. Um, and and we, you know, we can talk about what that means in a second, but it's in principle objectionable uh, if some people have less access to resources than other people due to factors outside of their control. Now, when I say in principle objectionable, I don't mean that there's no circumstance under which on balance you know, that that might be the lesser evil to allow that to continue to happen. There are certainly mm -hmm. there's certainly inequalities and in outcome that there's no reasonable way to uh, to correct for uh, even inequalities and in outcome that stem from things that people are outside of anybody's voluntary control. Um, but all else being equal, unless there's some other really important value that this is getting in the way of uh, that, you know, I do think that a virtue of social orders is when they more full, you know, when they at least come closer to 
it being the case that you don't have uh, you don't have inequalities in uh, in outcome that stem back to things that are outside of anybody's control because intuitively that does seem to be pretty central to why we object to you know caste systems or feudalism or you know or or racial discrimination or gender discrimination etc right like there are arguments you can make against all of these things on, on purely utilitarian grounds uh, that like, oh, if we have racial discrimination, the smartest people from certain races won't be making their contributions to science and et cetera, et cetera. But, and, you know, that might be part of why you're against it. But I think for most people, that's not the main reason that you're against it, right? I mean, the main feeling that racial discrimination in that example is unfair comes from the fact that people are having worse outcomes, not because they chose to work less or anything like that, uh, but because of, of factors completely outside of their control, like in that example, what your skin color is. And we could add to that, you know, what your what economic uh, position uh, position you're, you're, you know, you're born into and the and the point seems to be largely unaffected by the change. Well, I am going to somewhat disagree uh, in that I don't think the objection is based on things outside of our control. I think it's based on it, it's objective when it's based on something that sh we don't think should matter. For example, people's religion is completely within their control, but we still find it unacceptable to discriminate based on religion. Yeah, I, or, think, I think I think that's a fair I think that's a fair point. But I but I think that it's I would I would I would put it a little differently. I would say that what the religion example shows. Is mm -hmm. that that's is that the fact that something is not under your control is not the only reason that people having different outcomes based on it uh, would be objectionable, right? But well, I don't think it shows that it's not one thing that can make uh, disparate outcomes objectionable. Well, I, well, in addition to that, what I mean is like some things that are outside of our control do matter. Like our genetics, to a degree, will it will affect many of our opportunities. I mean, I'm six mm -hmm. foot four. I'm not ever going to be a competitive horse jockey. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, 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 and if, and if, if, uh, and if we lived in a society, uh, where, you know, you know, where one of, you know, the only way, you know, we were ruled, <laughs> we were ruled by a cast of competitive horse jockeys, right. Right. You know, like, like, and, and, and the only way to, to sort of break into the ruling class, you know, was, was by being a competitive horse jockey, that would seem extremely unjust. And one of the reasons it would seem extremely unjust is that it's outside of your control, right? I mean, I, I would completely uh, embrace uh, this, this example. I, I do not think that, uh, I do not think that to the extent that we can reasonably correct for it without violating other values, et cetera. I do not think that, um, that differences that are, uh, that are traceable back purely to genetic inheritance and not to voluntary choices, you know, should, should matter for, you know, for outcomes, whether it's that example, or I guess more realistically, historically, like a warrior cast that you could only be in if you were big and strong enough, had all the power and privileges, or uh, in uh, contemporary, you know, liberal capitalist society, just happened to be born with the propensities uh, for, you know, more easily developing the skills that help people do well in school and climb through professional ladders, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if some people have dramatically worse lives because they lack those skills and it's not under their control, you know, of course, it's always partially under your control. But if it's, you know, to a degree that we're worried about, it's not under your control whether you have those skills. Yeah, that does seem like an objection to, to having 
large-scale inequality based on factors like that. Well, and it's my fault for pausing. <laughs> but um, uh, I think one of the big factors that is almost completely out of most people's control that greatly affects anybody's economic prospects is geography. And not just I happen to be born in a wealthy country or a poor country, but certain – the African continent is the second largest continent in the world but it has the least amount of coastline it has fewer navigable rivers it has fewer places that are going to be useful for ports the zaire river has much has far more waterfalls and that are bigger compared to the mississippi like this that doesn't that doesn't explain all of the problems and struggles that many uh people living on the african continent face but that's a huge thing and even look at the U.S., the East Coast is far more developed than the West Coast. There's far more wealthy people on the East Coast. And that's one, well, you have just have years, far more years of human capital and capital development. So I guess my question is, is like, should geography matter? And to what extent should it? No, uh, I, I think I think would be the would be the simplest answer to give a slightly more nuanced answer. Uh, I, I think that. Um, you know, I can certainly see the point that there's a certain kind of moral urgency uh, that uh, underdevelopment in Africa has to Westerners to the extent that you think that the history of colonialism uh, is causally implicated in that underdevelopment and a much lesser degree to the extent that you think that factors, you know, like you, like you mentioned, are, right? Like we, we can agree, uh, even if you think, as a background thing, that, yeah, ideally, right, we would... Um, you know, we would want, right, you know, to, there are complicated questions here about the extent to which, you know, people are part of a sort of a single, you know, big society uh, or, or not. I think, I think with an increasingly globalized economy, you know, that's sort of murkier than ever, but they have, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that, I think that in general, uh, the, you know, I mean, to the extent that you can, you can reasonably correct for it, uh you know, without doing things that, you know, that violate other, other values than, than absolutely uh, inequalities, uh, inequalities between, you know, between countries uh, are, are important, right? You know, and, and, and I think that, um, you know, and, and are, are objectionable, you know, I mean, I think, I think it could be that in, in the case where you, you know, to a much greater extent, maybe than you do blame uh, the history of colonialism, uh, for uh, for the the economic condition of uh, of much of Africa, then there might be multiple reasons uh, to uh, to want to uh, to correct that, and so it might have greater moral urgency than if the only reason is just well, all else being equal, we would be living in a more just world if you didn't have a way worse life because which country you were living in. Uh, but I, I don't think that there would be no moral reason to want to correct for that if it just sort of you know arose immaculately in a way that I will say, I think very few really, you know, inequalities really do. Okay. Now this one's a little weirder and mm -hmm. I, 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 I forgot about it. I should have brought it up earlier. It's what about time? Uh, so it's undisputable that uh, white Americans have far more wealth on average than black Americans mm -hmm. and to a, to a great degree. But it's also true that the average white person is almost twice the age of the average black person. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for which are itself uh, something we can unpack. But nonetheless, simply born in a certain time or living longer, mm -hmm. like that's mostly out of our control as well. Should that be equalized? When you look at inequality distribution chart, like the or the distribution of income in mm -hmm. countries, it often 
lines pretty well up with the distribution of age and and which makes sense as as you get older you you build up skills you your income generally increases to a degree you build up capital and and wealth and whatnot so well to what to what extent should that be a factor to be corrected for even though it's something you largely can't control for yeah i i mean i think so first of all i think in the case of black and white americans i think that that's um that there's exactly one plausible explanation for that, uh, and and it's uh, and it's the the fact that you know poor people on average have much shorter life expectancies uh, than uh, than wealthier people do on average. So you know, so given you know, like most racial disparities, I think it could be traced back to that that they have uh, that uh, that the distribution of poverty uh, among the races is wildly unequal because of the history of slavery and Jim Crow and you know. FHA redlining and et cetera, you know, within living memory uh, that, um, and so because of that unequal distribution of, of poverty, you know, due to our apartheid past, uh, then, uh, then you have all of the social ills that go with poverty are also unequally distributed. Uh, and, and that would be the case, even if there was, there was zero racial prejudices in, in anybody's mind uh, in the in the present uh, in, in the present in the present day, so so I think that I think the much shorter life expectancy that tends to go uh, with with poverty is is going to be by far uh, the most important explanation. I think a lot of other explanations are going to be indirectly uh, ca- caused by that. But uh, on on principle, imagine that we lived in a utopia where where there was no no bad racial history where. Nobody was in a worse position because of because of what economic uh, location they were born into, et cetera, et cetera. But it was still the case that uh, older people, on average, were doing better off uh, than younger people. I do think that would be uh, that would be less objectionable than a lot of these other uh, inequalities because I think when you when we're concerned about you know about lack of resources, about quality of life, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I, you know we're concerned with how good a life one person is living versus how good a life another person is living. So, you know, if you're going to be doing better as you go on, uh, then uh, then you have much less of a legitimate complaint uh, than than somebody who's not going to. Which is one of, by the reason, by the way, one of the reasons that uh, union seniority systems are awesome and uh, and giving employers more flexibility about stuff like that is terrible. Okay, um, I'm. Not- there's a lot of debate over the extent of the effect of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. It's it's difficult to um to uh, really discern. I think uh, a number of uh, economists I think have at least is a good experiment uh, in using uh, how not not just African Americans but um, uh, immigrants with of African descent that came from a similar that came from a place that spoke English, they came from a place that had its own legacy of slavery uh, in the Anglo Caribbean, and then when they immigrate to the U.S., to what extent does that affect them? Because they're coming from just uh, just as just as if not more poor uh, places, they are unambiguously black. In fact, if anything, they're on average darker than the, the average African American. So whatever levels of systemic racism that are at play, but they tend to be overrepresented among high income at blacks. They tend to be overrepresented among blacks. Yeah, but that's but that's a but that's not that's not at all a comparison of like to like uh, because because uh, you're not mm. you're not talking about uh, you know. Uh, you know, you're not talking about random members uh, of uh, of groups uh, being, you know, being taken, you know, being, you know, like like your number came up uh, in the, uh, you know, we're like it's not like the people running this experiment have the power to make people, you know, move to True. the United States. 
uh, the uh, you're talking about uh, people who have in fact made it uh, to uh, to to the United States, and so I, I think it's going to be an extremely limited subset that's going to be wildly unrepresentative of the larger group. I think the larger point that even apart from the fact that that would be a hell of a weird coincidence uh, that the you know descendants of slaves on average you know are 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 doing so much worse than descendants of non-enslaved people, and an even bigger coincidence that uh, that people whose you know parents or grandparents uh, you know were were living under under Jim Crow uh, and and you know just de jure apartheid within living memory are doing so much better than people for for whom uh, that's that's not the case on average. That would be you know, but even beyond that, I think I, I think it's I think it's very hard to deny that on average, if you're born into poverty, you're more likely to end in poverty than somebody who wasn't. Now. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who are born into poverty who manage to be upwardly mobile. Of course there are. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who aren't born into poverty who fall into it. Of course they are. But I think it's very implausible to deny that if you're born into poverty, that considerably raises your chance of ending up in it. Oh, I don't... I don't. I don't think. I would. I wouldn't dispute that being born in poverty, you're more likely to die in poverty than someone who wasn't. I mean, that isn't. But that. I don't know if that really is necessarily relevant because. Well, 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 well the, the, the relevance would just be that if you have like start with the moment, right? Whatever moment you think this is, right? That mm-hmm. like okay, we have no more racial discrimination. We're you know equal playing field starting now, right? That at that moment. Uh, it is going to be the case that poverty is very unequally distributed because of all the legal <coughs> discrimination, et cetera, right? And so given that, if you have many more, you know, if you have disproportionately a larger, you know, portion of black people than the portion of white people who are born into poverty, and you accept that uh, somebody who is, uh, you know, that somebody who's born uh, into um you know, that uh, somebody who's born into poverty is more likely to die in poverty, then I think once you put those two together, uh, you know, you have to acknowledge that at least a significant chunk of racial disparity comes from that history. I, I won't dispute the possibility, but uh, like, 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 you're absolutely tr- uh, right that there could be a selection bias in those from the the uh, Afro-Caribbean immigrating to the U.S. in terms of the composition of the people that are, are coming, but the same same could be said about uh, the composition of the slaves that were brought here, or the immigration patterns. Yeah. At, that's, oh, that's, that's, so, well, my my point is, is that I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying is that it's not as clear cut as I, I think a lot of people claim on both sides. I, I know a lot of people when I bring up that stat about the, the Anglo Caribbean, a lot of people on the right like, well, that's Case closed. I'm not going to look any further. Like that. That's that's not the right reaction either. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I would just I would just think that again, uh, if you acknowledge that uh, that at the moment of the end of legal discrimination, uh, <coughs> many more black people are because of that living in poverty than many white people. That's an uncontroversial historical fact. Yes. Uh, and uh, and you also acknowledge that somebody born in poverty is at least more likely to uh, to die in poverty, then that putting those two, two together, um, you know, short of some sort of, short of one hell of a confounding factor that, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what that would be, right? Like, uh, but putting those two together, that seems to give you a lot more than just the bare possibility of it, right? I mean, that seems to give you 
a really good reason to think that that is at least a uh, a really significant factor. And I also don't think that there's really much of an analogy between saying that um, that people's um, that uh, that of course you know who's going to um, you know what categories of people, people with what life plans, etc are going to, uh, to to make the effort to integrate in the first place, not to mention, of course, that there are a lot of things about our, uh, our immigration system uh, that, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult process, right? You know, we don't, we don't, we don't make it easy, right? So I, I think that people uh, who, who A, make the effort in the first place and B, successfully jump through all the hoops, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be very unrepresentative. I have a hard time seeing an analogy between that and saying that, well, maybe you know enslaved ancestors of of uh of you know black people you know born in the united states had some feature that they had in common that was different from africans that were not enslaved it's 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 it, at the very least it's a lot harder to see uh what the uh you know what the uh like like it's it's much less obvious what that what that cause and effect story looks like uh than right. uh than in the in the immigrant case and also um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, that's packing a lot, you know, I mean, obviously heritable traits, et cetera, but that's packing a lot into heritable traits over a very long period of time, especially mm-hmm. because, you know, the most obvious genetic difference, uh, you know, between, uh, between the ancestry of, uh, of, you know, African-Americans and, uh, and and people who you know who were born into countries from you know from whom the ancestors of many African Americans were taken, uh, is uh, is the higher percentage of white ancestry of of, of African Americans. So unless that for some reason uh, causes uh, you know causes people to have some sort of heritable trait that makes them you know not rise through the economic ladder as well, then it seems well, like by far the simplest and most compelling explanation would just be. More black people in poverty coming out of legal discrimination, plus people born in poverty more likely to end up in poverty. Well, it's just, I mean, after you right. have your last words, think of doom. Let's go ahead and wrap it up after okay. you have your yep. last. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. Yeah, so um, I, I absolutely agree that you know the day after Jim Crow was repealed or the emancipation, it's not as if everything was great. The uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. Um, I, I think a big thing that's overlooked. Is uh, and it's it, you have to be very careful when you pr- propose this because it, it's it's often abused, but uh, Black American culture was forged through the crucible of slavery and Jim Crow, and it is distinct from uh, Black Britons or Black Australians or Dominicans. Like, so it's not it's certainly it's not genetics, but culture like there there are elements of the culture where some of them eschew certain particular fields or you know oh you're going to college you're doing you're uh, you know you're, you're doing what the man is plus there's a there's a subculture that uh is part of the drug war the drug war like blacks blacks kill themselves at three times to- three to five times the rate that's what that whites do and this is largely due to gang warfare because of the drug war and the drug war uh, with cartels and part and there's a cultural element to that as well and then they in you you grow up in that it reinforces i'm not blaming anybody you're right like it's part of your cultural dna and so that these are harmful things that have to be accounted for i don't think they necessarily fully explain it culture doesn't fully explain it genetics doesn't explain it i don't think any one factor explains it and because the 
attempt to explain it is so politicized that I don't, we're not really asking the right questions kind of thing. And it, it's, it's a complex topic and I, I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, I just think that I don't think we should just look at one or just look at the other, but it's difficult to really coalesce um, those factors in a, in a meaningful way. All right. Thank you so much, Sphincter of Doom and Dr. Ben Burgess for this riveting discussion. I want to let everybody know and remind you that uh, the debate con is coming up. Uh, Hannah Anderson has just placed in the the, uh, the chat uh, a link to the crowdfunding. Uh, so if you would like to support James and Modern Day Debate in, in putting on this debate con, then the crowdfunding link is there so you can go ahead and contribute to the pot. I also want to thank you guys for uh, having this discussion. So um, we don't have a lot of questions. Uh, like, <laughs> I, I saw a question in the chat that wasn't a super chat, but I can answer it. Yeah. Someone no someone noticed that I was popping cough drops. They're asking what brand, and uh, they're Halls, and uh, they're specifically the uh, the cooling strawberry Halls, and uh, they taste okay. good, and the mentholated filling feels nice. So nice. that's that's why I picked them. Well, I'm going to uh, give you what we have. You guys can talk about it as much as you want or as little as you want. If any more Super Chats come in, of course, we'll read them until uh, we call it a night, and then that'll be it. But if you do have any questions or comments for the uh, debaters, please send them in now. And again, their links are in the description, so please click them. If you like what you've heard tonight, if you want to learn more about them, please check them out. Uh, like Share, subscribe, the like button. We have 62 likes right now and 143 viewers, so I know we can get more likes. So please like the stream, guys. And um, okay, so super chats. Just we have a two dollar super chat from Bubblegum Gun uh, at Ben. Should the state have inequality of violence? Uh, that's odd phrasing, but uh, but I I think that of course. Um, you know, a big part of the function of a state is to take violence uh, out of the, the hands of, uh, of private vigilantes. You know, that's one of the things that you uh, that you hope for uh, in, uh, in a state. Um, you know, of course, states also perpetuate uh, a lot of, you know, you know, violence in, uh, you know, waging wars abroad that I certainly, you know, that I certainly view as wildly illegitimate. Uh, but... Um, but you know, I, I think even putting aside the terrible state that we have right now, and and, and thinking about a much a much better state, uh, then yeah, I do want there to be a uh, an inequality in in you know sort of ability to uh, to use violence uh, between you know me and you and Josh on the one hand, uh, and uh, and people who are tasked with you know certain kinds of you know enforcement on the other, again. I'm very not crazy about the enforcement system that we have right now. I think we could do a lot better. Uh, and and I certainly don't think that ordinary people, you know, that like um, random citizens should have no, uh, you know, legal right to use violence. I mean, you know, even very authoritarian regimes generally recognize some kind of right to self-defense. And, you know, and, and that's, that's as it should be. Um, but, you know, I think if, I think if you have a world where, um, you know, a lot of, you know, where the response to people being sort of interpersonally victimized isn't vigilantism and vendettas, you know, that sounds like a better world to me. Uh, and, uh, and and I think that it's also pretty bad 
when you know you end up with you know people who have concentrated economic power. It's bad enough when they're exercising uh, political influence uh, to get uh, to get the state to do what they want. It's it's even worse uh, when they're allowed to just have private armies like the you know the Pinkertons who would uh, who would kill strikers uh, in the uh, in, in the in the Gilded Age. So yeah, I I, I do think so. Uh, I also, again, on this whole question of violence or aggression or coercion or any of that stuff, you know, any, anything, anything swirling around there, I would just reiterate the point I made in the opening about um, why I think that when we're talking about distribution of resources, those are largely red herrings because, um, you know, any, any system for distributed resources is, is going to be, you know, backed up by coercion, uh, or else it's going to very quickly not exist. Uh, the uh, the question on the table is always, which distribution of resources should be backed up by coercion? Do we think that you know ships fall where they may at a free market, and uh, and whatever the result is is fine? Is that our theory of what a good system of distribution is? Uh, do we think that you know do we think that something much more egalitarian in that equality of opportunity way I laid out, you know, earlier is a good distribution of resources. I think these are good substantive things to argue about, but I think all of these questions about violence and coercion and all that are largely a red herring in that discussion. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, the next question we have, well, this is a comment from Adam Abila, 15 shekels, uh, 35 short of a freshly raped virgin from <laughs> here you go. Uh, MDD. Now we have two super chats. Hooray. Thank you so much, Adam. Uh, Joe Schwartz for one ninety nine for both. What's your favorite South Park episode? Ooh. Um, you go first. Uh, my favorite, and granted, I haven't seen some of this newer stuff. I have to go with this classic Scott Tennerman episode. <laughs> yeah, that is that is that is definitely a uh, a top five South Park episode. Uh, I mean, I'm in a similar similar situation there. Like, I was, I don't know, I can remember. Like, I definitely went through like way the hell back when when I was like getting stuff from you know video stores. Uh, you know, the the early seasons, and I remember watching. A lot of it is it was coming out in like 2010, 2011, and then I really stopped for a long time. I will say actually uh, that I, you know, at the risk of dodging the question, I will say that I think that their um, that uh, their coverage of the 2016 election was excellent. Uh, that the that like the the South Park uh, satire of of that election was actually some of the best commentary on what was going on there. That. Uh, you know that I've I've seen uh, I've seen from anyone, but yeah, God, let me think about that. Um, yeah, Scott Timberman uh, is uh, is very good. Um, I think just trying to think about like oh, actually, here here's one I like a lot. Honestly, I don't know that it's better than Scott Timberman, but I I don't want to I don't want to just repeat your answer, and so I'll I'll, I'll just say one that I like a lot is the uh, toilet paper in episode uh, where um, they, they have, you know, the, the kids toilet paper, the art teachers, art teachers house. And then, well, I'm not going to give away everything that happens in the episode, but uh, there's, a, there's a discussion at the end where, between the other kids and Cartman about feeling empathy. You know, we, we care about other people, Eric, that, uh, that is like one of the funniest things I think in the entire show. Okay. Thank you so much. Did you guys both get to answer that? Yeah. 
<laughs> at length. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, where are we? Uh, that was Joe Schwartz. We have another one from a long story short for $5. I grew up with Caribbeans my entire life. They never thought of themselves as victims. That is why they are successful. I think that is for... Well, who... Uh... Yeah, so, so, so I think Josh... That's more for ben. Yeah, Josh was the one who brought it up, and it sounds like the commenters agreeing with him. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, so so I think that uh, that claim, right, I mean, partially gets down to questions about kind of what Josh was talking about, the end of open discussion, you know, the extent to which you think that the sort of main explanation for, for disparities is uh, culture, the ideas in people's heads, uh, as opposed to more more directly uh, material factors, uh, and and I'm I'm very skeptical in general of culturalist explanations. Uh, I I think that you know there, if nothing else, there are too many examples of you know like ethnic groups that at times when uh, when poverty was extremely widespread among them, you had a lot of social ills that people blame on culture, and uh, and and they those decreased lazy. Uh, you know, after after the, the economic improves, and it doesn't seem like there's an obvious change in uh, in culture. Uh, you know, the the idea that somebody you know like like hard striving immigrants are just go getters, and you know that that's the that's the sort of main explanation uh, for for the disparity. I, I, I mean, I I guess um, certainly. You know the fact that immigration pre-selects for people with given life plans and aspirations and etc. I would deny. You know that that's that that's part of the explanation. In fact, I think that actually kind of reinforces my point, right? That they that those things only go so far, right? That you know that we're not comparing, you know, um, we're not comparing like just any random Caribbean uh, as they are in the United States, um, you know, as an immigrant to the you know like you know, just any random Caribbean just wakes up teleported into the United States tomorrow. You know, we're not comparing them to any random African-American board in the United States, which, which would be the, the like-to-like comparison. We're, we're comparing people who, whether you attribute it to um, sort of happenstance, giving people a chance to do one thing or another, or whether you attribute it to people getting go-getting strivers or whatever, uh, either way, Right, you're talking about a very different subset of of Caribbeans than than just like representative cross section of everybody uh, of everybody from from the Caribbean, and you're comparing that not to like let's let's just assume for the sake of argument that the the, the questioner's um, explanation is the correct one, right? Uh, okay, so the like to like comparison would be what's the success rate of the most striving, go-getting, whatever percentage, you know, like of uh, there would be a comparable size percentage of African Americans to the comparably sized uh, percentage of Caribbeans, and um, and even if it is the case, right, you know, maybe it's the case that the that that would be, you know, you'd have just as much success in both cases. I think the fundamental point wouldn't really be touched by it, right, because the sort of fundamental point is that. If you're born into poverty, it's harder, not impossible, definitely not impossible. Lots of people do it, but it's harder to, to be, you know, to escape from poverty, to have a different economic location later, 
than it is if you were not born into poverty to uh, to stay out of it. And so whatever combination of factors you think might lead some people to be, you know, more successful at that than others in terms of just, you know, sure, those attitudes or uh, particular material advantages at particular moments in someone's life that, you know, that might come up for one reason or another, sheer dumb luck, uh, you know, genetic propensity towards certain skills, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever factors are you think make some people better at escaping poverty than others, if those factors are going to be unevenly distributed, just like the same factors are unequally, unevenly distributed among people who are not born into poverty, uh, then you're you're going to have more people from the first group end up in poverty than the second group. And that would still be by far the best explanation of why you have these racial disparities in poverty. Uh, I'd like to kind of piggyback on that. Just, just to be clear, I was not referring to the entire Caribbean. I was speaking to the Anglo-Caribbean because I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep constant the fact that they speak English and African Americans speak English. So it's kind of like Jamaica, Trinidad, you know, parts of the Caribbean that are almost entirely uh, composed of black people, and they have a legacy of slavery, and they speak the English language. You could even include Guyana and Suriname in that even though it's South America and not the Caribbean. Uh, interestingly enough, Puerto Ricans that immigrate, they do not see the same pattern as you see uh, from the uh, Anglo-Caribbean. Part of that is because they don't speak English as a native language. Um, also, but at the same time, roughly 12% of Puerto Ricans are also Afro-Latino. Uh, so many of them are white Hispanics. So it, it really really raises the question of how much their visible um, ethnicity or race has an, an impact on that. Um, yeah, but I, at the same time, I fully concede, like it, it's difficult to account for the selection issue there, but I, I, I don't think it's, it can be completely discounted either. We do yes, have to keep it short and pithy from now on, guys. Uh, okay, okay just, just, just really quickly, I was, I was gonna say uh, that, the, uh, that, uh, that I think uh, I mean, I'll certainly take that you're not talking about all Caribbeans as a friendly amendment, but I think everything that I said during the previous few minutes, you could just substitute Jamaicans for Caribbeans, and I think the point would stand. Okay. All right. So uh, I guess uh, some people wanted to send in some more Super Chats after we uh, started the Q&A. So uh, moving along. Long Nights YouTube in for $5 says, I wish we would stop calling black people black people and white people whites. I'm sorry. I wish we would stop calling black people blacks and white people whites. We lose the people factor and it relegates us to a color. Always an us versus them dynamic. I think, uh, do either of you want to comment on that? I, I think um, the, the uh, rhetorical weight of those words is up to society. And we can decide whether there's some sort of moral aspect to that or not. And I personally don't or I strive to at least not to um, have any kind of more like, oh, blacks versus black people, whites versus white people. I can't say that other people don't, but I'm not sure I, I necessarily, I, 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 I sympathize with the sentiment. I don't think it's necessary to have the word people in it for us to consider them people. Yeah. Well, I certainly agree with that. Uh, I will say that that usage, blacks, whites, uh, maybe just because it's dated and maybe it's an arbitrary association, but it, it certainly sounds funny to my ear, you know, like, like, like the more natural way to talk to me would be white people and black people. But I'm also very skeptical that uh, language choices 
are are the sort of main driving force of any of this stuff. Okay, thank you so much. Moving along, a long story short for $5 says, Ben needs to take a field trip to New York and just talk to Caribbean and West Africans. It will give you insight. Haitians earn the same as average Americans. Um, okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think the last the last sentence was the most interesting. Uh, that's certainly not my impression for my six and a half years living in Miami, which has a very large Haitian population. Uh, but you know, but since it's an empirical question, you would have to like look it up and probably do, um, you know, I mean, we could do the YouTube thing where people look it up in ten seconds and sort of glance at it and. You know, but I think it would probably be a more interesting answer. You know, give it a little bit more time to look into the empirical claim uh, at the uh, at the end. Uh, but uh, but I, I'm always happy to take trips to New York. I like taking trips to New York. I try to do that regularly. And one of the people that I I try to see there is is actually you know by coincidence Haitian. So uh, so it's a it's a fun question. I like it. I have I have a question for you, Ben. Morehouse College. That's where you teach, right? Uh, yeah. So, so as a, uh, as yeah, so, so I, as an adjunct, I, I actually just started at a gig at, uh, at, at Morehouse college. Okay. But yeah. What was your, what was your question? Well, I mean, Morehouse is in Atlanta. It's a historically black college. So I'm just, mm -hmm. I was curious if of the, the composition of the student body that you see. Oh yeah. It's, it's a, it's an overwhelmingly black, uh, college is, is my, you know, I mean, this is actually, again, I'm, I'm going to be, Coming in and starting to starting to to teach there, so there's not a lot of information that I could give you. But my but certainly my understanding is that it's an overwhelmingly uh, black college. It's a it's a yeah it's a HBCU is the uh, is the acronym people use. You know, so it's a historically black college. Okay. Cool. All right. Um, the last super chat that I have on my list right now is from Warren Ellis for five dollars. He asks, Have either of you read Anthony Atkinson's book Inequality? If you had, what do you think of the, his solutions for the UK and the US? I can't hear you. You're muted. I was just going to say I'm not familiar with that book. Are you, Josh? Okay. I will say I, I definitely saw at least one other super chat earlier. I, I don't. I don't know if it, it got lost in the. You know. In the I do know that one was uh, there was some kind of drama about somebody having a super chat that he didn't want if uh anybody knows what super chat dr burgess is referring to please say so right now i'm watching this live chat uh okay but so if not we can move on we do have other questions to talk about uh, okay so so if if i'm not just making it up uh the uh the super chat i could swear i remember from earlier was uh our um it was something like a you know, are some people fat because other people are thin, or something like that? And uh, and and if 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 that mm. if if my memory is that correct, I, I did want to answer that just because it's a, you know, it's it's a fun question. I'd say yeah, under certain circumstances, absolutely. You know, if uh, uh, you know, if you if you have uh, limited amounts of food to go around, or or even if you have uh, economic disparities uh, that that lead you know to some people having less of a you know, less time and, you know, and energy, you know, to, to cook healthy food, et cetera. Uh, or, Hey, if, uh, you know, if, if you're, uh, you know, you could also have, have weight disparities because of, you know, undiagnosed medical conditions, you know, you could be really thin because you have a tapeworm you haven't found out about because you don't want to go to the doctor, uh, cause, uh, cause you don't want the copa. I have been accused of being anorexic or a tapeworm most of my life, but I just have a crazy metabolism. 
got you. Okay. Uh, so uh, some other questions. We do have about five minutes left. Um, uh, Noob Slayer asks who you are. Say it's Like what? Like what? Cosmically? Like that's a, that's, a, that's an open question. Um, <laughs> I guess I really. I guess it's more like how I answer that question tells me what kind of person I am. It's like it's a it's a meta question. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a chemical engineer. I'm kind of an econ nerd. I actually really I really like debating. Not in the sense, not in the contrarian sense. Uh, I learned uh, in my youth that you can only learn so much on your own. You we all have intellectual and emotional uh, blind spots, and you can only learn so much from those with whom you agree because they likely have those same blind spots. So at some point, you have to subject your views to scrutiny and start talking to people with whom you disagree to learn something new. And that's a big part where I enjoy debate. <coughs> Sorry. Thank you so much. Uh, John Edwards asks, wait, where is James? Kaz, you moderating? Yes, I'm moderating. James is uh, dedicating his firstborn child to Rumpelstiltskin, as I said in the chat. No, I'm just kidding. He is uh, studying, I believe, or working on his uh, PhD. Um, Skeptic seventy seven. Are the books behind Ben all books he read? No, no, certainly not. Uh, there are um, there are a lot of books that I've read behind me, but there are also books that you know I hope to read at some point. You know, I'm I'm, I'm I've always been kind of a book hoarder. Uh, there's you know like like I I you know there are all those memes about like you know hey are you going to read all the books you have before you get more books and you know I was like now I'm going to get these books you know this this books first. Uh, when, you know, when I had, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, I always end up giving books away when I move, whatever I, I, I buy, I buy too many books. I think actually stuff that's visible is pretty much all stuff I've read, but there's definitely stuff on these shelves. I have, I have no question about that. Gotcha. Thank you so much. All right. Um, Noob Slayer question, Noob Slayer. I just realized his, his name is longer than that, or maybe not a uh, question for both. He says, what? Why care about any of this? What's the ethical argument to even bother considering equality or whatever? Yeah, so I guess that's more of a question for me because because I'm the one who thinks that we should care about it. Uh, that uh, that at least all else being equal, you know, it's 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 you know much better, you know, to to have a more equal society. Uh, I think that again, I, I I went through a bunch of reasons in uh, in the opening. I think that if you, you know, if you think that uh, if you if you will at least grant me that citizens should have an equality of political power, I think that gives us a reason to care about economic equality. Maybe you don't care about that. Uh, if you if you care about freedom, that I think uh, that I think making people less vulnerable to the soft coercion of of needing to do what others say in order to have you know. Uh, people having that sway over them, so their material needs met uh, is an important reason. Maybe you don't care about freedom either. Uh, if you uh, if you care, uh, you know, if you care about people uh, having uh, you know lacking equality of opportunity. I mean, we spent a lot. I spent a lot of time both in the opening and the back and forth with Josh talking about why I think equality of opportunity is incompatible with large scale uh, with what large scale inequality of outcome. Maybe you don't care about a equality of opportunity either. That's one of the kinds of equality you're asking why we should care about. Uh, and then I also said, this was the only remaining one I haven't mentioned, I also said that uh, people having shorter, less happy, uh, you know, more stressful lives because uh, that they could be prevented by someone equalizing resources uh, is, is, a, uh, is a problem. But again, maybe you don't care about that. 
And if you really don't care about any of this stuff, then we can go back to that South Park episode that I mentioned uh, where, where the, the boys are desperately trying to explain to Cartman, who's just looking at them like they're crazy. No, Eric, we care about other people. And he's just like, what? So uh, I think both of us should care about this because we care about how the economy is structured and that affects people one way or the other. And we just disagree on how best to structure the economy and whether, you know, what, what are the appropriate or the inappropriate constraints, what are any, any sort of interventions uh, or the standards by which we would uh, uh, judge our actions or inactions. And uh, this, is, this is an element of that. And I mean, that's why I care about it. And I, but, uh, to, to answer, like, I do care about opportunity and people's, you know, agency and whatnot. But I, I don't see them as some sort of singular good. I mean, we, we talked about the various conditions that should or shouldn't matter uh, at length. And I don't, it, it wasn't even exhaustive. We didn't have the time. But, uh, yes, yeah, so we, we, we kind of just, you would probably need much more time to, you know, reconcile our views, if ever. Uh, gotcha. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think we're going to ask our last questions here. Um, Rock E. Shepard is asking, what is the best form of government? Do you like constitutional republic? And he's not addressing anyone specifically. So uh, you guys could just give me a yes or no, each of you. The second question, at least. I have no problems with the Constitutional Republic. I'm not sure it's the best. Federations have their advantages and their disadvantages. I don't think there's any one good form of government. Uh, a, a good government is one that isn't oppressive. How about that? Dr. Burgess? Oh, sorry. Uh, I, I, I did the thumbs up earlier uh, for... Uh, yeah, I, I think a good form of government is one where uh, that you know maximizes uh, people's... Um, ability and practice to uh uh to to uh control their their own their own destiny to to determine what happens to them uh which i think in areas that touch a bunch of other people means democracy uh in in areas that are just about yourself you know uh means you know means personal freedom and and yeah i, I like democracy uh i like it so much that i want to extend it to the workplace thank you so much okay um so my clock is up for the q a you guys ready to get out of here Pretty much. Um, I just want to ask you guys a personal, not personal question, but I just wanted to know, um, uh, Dr. Burgess and Sphinx of Doom, are, are, are you guys moral relativists, moral realists, moral objectivists? What would you call yourselves? Just, I just want to know the label. You don't have to expound on it or anything. I just want to know. I mean, I, I don't think that there's a, if, I don't think that there's a, there's a short answer to that. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a short label that I'm confident is true that uh, that I could just I could just give the the label. I have I have some thoughts. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I'd, I'm certainly not a relativist in the sense of like uh, the sort of like 19 year old, you know, intro to ethics student relativist. You know, it's like, oh, you know, whatever. And it's just like an opinion, nothing to argue about. Uh, clearly not. But uh, in terms of like meta ethics. I. I don't know. It's a it's a very big subject, and I, I would not I would not claim to have like really settled views. Interesting. And it's Victor of Doom. I'm I'm kind of like we 
I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. It's difficult to put those views in a box. Uh, I, I will, I, I will say at least for clarification is that moral relativism, relativism just seems very puzzling to me because at the end of the day, morality is deciding, you know, a framework for acceptable or unacceptable obligatory or discretionary behaviors. And that either applies to everybody or it doesn't. We may disagree on what those behaviors should or shouldn't be or what should or shouldn't be in, the, in those categories. But it, it just seems odd to me. Um, but then again, uh, maybe I should uh, look further into it. And I there's something I hadn't considered. Okay. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you both so much for this great debate. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. If, unless you guys have anything else you want to say? No? Okay. So again, thank the moderators. Thank you to the debaters and speakers for this great discussion. Thank you to the moderators in the chat for keeping everything very civil and uh, working so hard and tirelessly. Thank you to James for uh, creating and maintaining this wonderful platform that we all get to share our, discuss our ideas and have great discussions on. Uh, thank you to the audience for participating and watching us and making this everything that it is. Uh, thank you to everyone who sent in super chats and elevating the conversation. Thank you to, uh, once again, Lastly, the light debaters who are the lifeblood of the show. Um, like, share, subscribe. Once again, uh, we have another debate coming up tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Cy Gart and Jen from Church of Entropy for Evolution on uh, is going to be debated. Uh, the debate con is coming up in a couple of weeks, so please uh, support that. Buy tickets if you can. Go down and see them live. And remember to keep sifting out the reasonable... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.